in part because I don't think we understand creativity, which was a big part of why I wrote the Creativity Leap. I think we only relegate it to the arts and we don't realize that the best engineers and coders and accountants and lawyers and teachers and farmers are super creative. The world around us is changing faster than ever. We hear people say, everything's a blur. And when we're living in our little self, a self in survival mode, a self that's living out what others believe we should do or who we should be, we compromise our joy. We put limits on ourselves and how we show up day in and day out. We believe we all have a big self and pursuing it is holy work. We also believe that most of us let fear persuade us not to pay attention to it. So we stay in this vicious cycle between fear and entrapment that keeps us playing small. But when we combine an insatiable curiosity to know our true self with the courage to share our innate gifts with the world, we get closer and closer to our big self. Today on The Big Self Show, I have the privilege and opportunity to speak with Natalie Nixon, author of The Creativity Leap. And we have a wonderful conversation about how just too many people associate creativity solely with the arts, even though to be an incredible scientist, engineer, or entrepreneur requires immense creativity. And it's the key to developing breakthrough products and services. And Natalie Nixon is a creative strategist with a background in cultural anthropology, fashion, and service design. And she says, amongst other things, that in the fourth industrial revolution, a creativity leap is needed to bridge the gap that exists between the churn of work and the highly sought after prize that we call innovation. Also, I would say from our conversation, this is an invitation to tap into your innate creativity that lies within you. We can offer here a more dynamic and integrative way to adapt and innovate and one that allows us the freedom to access our full human selves. So thanks for tuning in to this conversation. Natalie Nixon, welcome to the Big Self Show. Thank you, Chad. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it is so great to have you. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation, especially just centered around your book, The Creativity Leap, Unleashing Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work is the subtitle. I know you published this a few years ago, 2020, I think. Yes, but uh, it's resonant. I think uh, everyone should be familiar with this approach that you're you're taking. What does living in your big self mean to you? And you know, how does it differ from living in your little self? I love the question. And when you first posed it, the first words that the first word that occurred to me is expansive. So living in my big self means that I'm not afraid to expand. I'm not afraid. There's no fear when I'm living big, largely. And um, 
it's it's living in all the dimensions of myself so not just the the side of myself that I share from a professional perspective but the sides of myself that are playful that are emotional it's all the dimensions of myself that's what living big feels like and sounds like to me and did you have a second part of the question well, just how you might uh, contrast it with like how one would be living in their little self. You know, I actually, and I learned later, this is some sort of helpful psychological technique. I regularly practice self-comfort by imagining myself at seven years old. And there's a photograph I have. I remember one of those school photos where... Your mom picks out an outfit and made, in our case, make sure your hair was shampooed and combed nicely. And, and in my case, my mom had a signature perfume, um, Shalimar, Guerlain's Shalimar. And she would dab a bit behind each ear, maybe on each wrist because it was a special day. <laughs> and I remember that picture. And it's a, it's a version of me that I was physically smaller. And I think... Um, I, I was just smaller in terms of what I could even, even imagine for myself, but maybe not. Maybe my imagination was even more powerful and larger than, than what it is today. But I, I love recalling that image of myself as a way to be endearing to myself, as a way to be affectionate, forgiving, and not... I don't let the negative Nancy, or I should, in my case, the negative Natalie voice creep up. <laughs> it's, it's a much more endearing and comforting image of myself, that smaller self that it is helpful for me to keep in mind. Literally a little self. <laughs> I love that. It reminds me, you know, I was just, we were just watching a Ted Lasso episode. I don't know if you see any of those, but Rebecca, what there was this, the episode was she, before she was going to go to this big conference that was with nothing but men, she looked in the mirror and she was looking at herself as a young, a young Rebecca. Mm. And, and then she went and she confronted all the men who wanted to sell out their soccer stadiums or something, all these owners. And there was this moment where she saw all of them as little boys. Oh, nice. And then she was that. able to just tell them the things that she wanted to tell them. Yeah. It, I, I did not, I love Ted Lasso. I did not see that particular episode. And Ted Lasso is full of so many incredible life lessons. And yeah. that that episode reminds me of the, I think it's famous, the Brady Bunch episode where Jan or someone has to give a public speaking <laughs> thing. And her parents said, just, just think of everyone sitting there in their underwear. But it, whatever, the, the point is, uh, at the, we were all seven years old at some point. We didn't all have it figured out. We still don't. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think it's a, it's a coaching technique too, that I know that I use, which is like to help a person when they have a strong inner critic or when they're being really, they can be hard on themselves. I'm like, yeah, but is that how you would speak to a little, like a child, even if it's not you think no. of like, try to filter yourself, the things you're saying to yourself, if you wouldn't say it to a kid, don't say it to yourself. Right. Right. You know, I'm thinking though, Natalie, for our conversation, you know, I've been kind of giving some more thought to this idea of 
how, you know, we say that we value creativity so much. We say that we value it. It's like, I remember um, as a professor, I was a professor in the early 2000s for about 10 years. And I remember in in the pedagogy, the educational emphasis was on this like, hey, we're going to get out of this lower level learning of memorization and, and facts. And we're aiming for critical thinking skills and creativity. That's the highest part of the pyramid. For all of that, I don't sense that you know, I guess, well, isn't it interesting the way that it's viewed creativity as this high level way of thinking? And yet, as you mentioned, it's barely even mentioned in most business contexts. It's not. It, creativity is not something that we integrate into higher education necessarily, right? Right. It's even that. Kind of left behind, maybe in the middle school years. And one of the things I noticed, because like you, I was also a professor. I was a professor for 16 mm-hmm. years. And during the stage of my academic career, when I created and launched a strategic design MBA program, I would invite a lot of successful entrepreneurs and business leaders and thought leaders to come talk to our graduate students. And I began to observe this pattern where when they would reflect on their career trajectory, of them would say things like something told me not to do the deal or something told me to work with her and not him. And I quickly surmised, I think that something is intuition, which you and I can talk about a little later, but intuition is a big dimension of how we can activate our creativity, but we don't touch upon intuition in business school, law school, medical school, yet Pretty much the majority of successful leaders credit their intuition, integrating it into their strategic decision making. And so things like intuition, improvisation, curiosity, all the things that are in the subtitle of my book are super significant for us to activate creativity and for us to sustain it. And what if we were more intentional about including it in our in, in our pedagogy not just in kindergarten and fifth grade, but also throughout the university years and definitely throughout high school. Yeah, I'm wondering if, you know, early on in your book, you talk about, you give this illustration that Laura, the famous actress, Laura Linney uses in describing some of the like ambiguity and the discomfort in the creative process. And Why, I guess, could you show, tell us a little bit about how organizations might resist that part of the process, the discomfort and the ambiguity? So the anecdote I shared was actually based on an interview I heard when Laura Linney was being interviewed. And she's a big stage theater actor as well as a a film actor. I loved her in Ozark. Uh, And Hmm. in this interview, she was recalling how there seems to be a pattern in live stage theater rehearsals where at the first few weeks, the first month or so, everyone's super excited, lots of adrenaline, lots of anticipation to connect with new people, to explore this creative process. And then she said like clockwork, maybe it's around week seven or nine, the whole cast hits this wall, there's friction, there's breakdowns, there's 
there's tensions, you, it's hard to move through the work and it feels super ambiguous. And what she was saying was that you must sit with the ambiguity of that process. You cannot just uh, ignore it. You can't walk around it, but you must go through it. And I think that we don't sit well with ambiguity in our, definitely not in, our, in most of our corporate environments in most work organizations. Again, it stems back to the way we're educated, right? We're educated towards what's the answer. We need a solution. Not all of us are educated in that way. In fact, the areas where I see us educated towards embracing ambiguity and process are in two places. Number one, in more elite educational environments. Okay. The opportunity to be part of. So I started out in Philly urban public school, which was not one of those environments where I got really good at completing the worksheet, giving the teacher the right answer, getting the gold star. Yeah. And, and we then, wonder why our kids are like burning out or, you know, just fatiguing because yes. that, that is what it still is. That's right. Education hasn't changed in the past couple centuries. Right. And then we, we, we graduate people and we want them to think out of the box and we get them to sit in office cubicles, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> but for high school, I, I had the incredible privilege to, to go to Germantown Friends School, which is this stellar elite Quaker uh, prep school in Philadelphia. And the first two years were super hard for me because it was a very different culture of learning and my grades plummeted hmm. because I had to get used to not just calling my teacher by the first name and walking home from public transportation with this strange sports instrument called a Phil hockey stick. And in my neighborhood, no one played Phil hockey. So that was really <laughs> weird. Yeah. Uh, but also a culture of learning where it was all about ask a better question. In fact, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And it took me two years to get my head wrapped around that culture of learning. And what I realized, I was in an environment as, as, as distinct from my friends back on the block where I was being part of an educational system where we were being prepared to make the rules. We were being prepared to develop the questions. And that's, the, that's how all of us should be educated in my view, not just to fall in line and fall in step. And so a lot of the reason why we were so, we, we experienced so much discomfort with ambiguity and a bit cautious to fall in love with the process, which is super ambiguous, is because of the way we've been educated. And I'll just share one more anecdote, which I share sometimes in my keynotes. I started watching a great Netflix series called Billion Dollar Code over COVID, of course, because there's a lot of Netflix shows to be watched. And- <laughs> It's a story about the about Ger the Germans' version of the origination of Google Earth. So and so, spoiler alert: there's the lawsuit where these two Germans who say they developed the algorithm for for Google Earth, they're suing the Americans um, and Silicon Valley. Okay. Anyway, for the moment where 1992, East Berlin, this coder and this art student have developed this algorithm. They're getting funding from Deutsche Telekom. And Deutsche Telekom, their funders are very frustrated because they haven't innovated yet. And they're about to be kicked out of the corporate boardroom. And at the last moment, Jürgen Mueller spins on his heel and he said, he looks at the board and he says, but isn't that what innovation is all about? Making mistakes. And I love that moment because innovation is messy. Innovation is ambiguous and creativity 
is the engine for innovation, but we don't build the runway to allow people to fail and make mistakes at, at the same time that we are asking them and expecting them to, to innovate. Ooh, we certainly, we certainly don't. And that leads me then to ask, you know, you observe throughout your entire book, you know, and it, to me, it's an interesting paradox because uh, I guess is what you could call it. And you literally write, I'm quoting, creativity requires analytical rigor and analysis requires a capacity for wonder to make sense of a conundrum, <laughs> if everybody can follow that. There, and so uh, to me, it's like, why is this combination of wonder and rigor more essential than ever uh, in the workplace? Yeah, so the way I define creativity, as you've just alluded to, is that it's our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, generate novel value, and produce meaning. And the reason why wonder and rigor are important to keep in mind is because typically when we think about creativity, number one, we're only thinking of artists, which is not right. fair to artists or beneficial to the rest of society. And secondly, we tend to just stop with wonder, right? We think creativity is, oh, it's doing whatever you feel like, it's being super dreamy. That's part of it. The other part of a creative practice is the rigor. It's the attention to, to detail and skill mastery and discipline and time on task. And the reason why this matters more than ever is I'm increasingly interested in and, and part of, of what my next book will be about is what does what does work look like in the midst of this fourth industrial revolution where things like chat GPT and robotics and automation Technology is ubiquitous. What does work look like in this context? And what does creativity look like in the midst of so much technology? Well, there is some bad news. There are going to be a lot of casualties as a result of this mm -hmm. shift to ubiquitous tech. And the opportunity, because so many basic tasks will be taken over by, auto by automation and technology, the great news is that there's for, for companies and organizations that are they're thinking about this in an enlightened way, there will be more opportunity to make room for what makes us uniquely human to show up in the workplace. And one of the things that makes us uniquely human is our capacity for creativity. And now mm. more than ever, we need to be super creative to deal with some really wicked challenges and wicked is, I'm not using the, the word wicked in a moralistic way. I'm using the word wicked challenge in a in systems design work. We call that wicked challenges. Like what's the cure to HIV AIDS, which we have actually kind of gotten closer to now, or, or, you know, how do we ensure that every child in America gets access to stellar education? Or how do we make sure that there are no longer any refugees in the world, right? Like, like wicked hard. It's wicked hard. And the more you pull at, at the yarn from this, from this, gnarly ball of yarn, it leads to another question, another question. Mm. So um, now more than ever, we need creativity. It's not a nice to have, it's a must yeah. have. And mm. um, the technology, yeah, let's look at something like ChatGPT. Mm. If you played around with it, you realize you need to be really good at asking questions and curiosity inquiries, one of those activators for creativity. I call it the three eyes, inquiry, improv, and intuition. So yeah. we still need our creative capacity to navigate this tech. 
Wow, that is awesome. That is so true. We we need to encourage that. Well, let's think. So you're you you were talking about in your personal experience going to this new school, uh, which it sounds like it was pretty foundational for you in a lot of ways, uh, and disrupted your your cultural experience and expectations at a young age. I'm thinking so, and, and you said that it took you a couple of years to adjust. How can we, I guess, what's the bottom line? How can we help um, organizations like feel more comfortable with encouraging people to create, to create the conditions for asking better questions? Well, I think you just said the magic word there in your question. We have to create conditions where asking questions and inquiry is not punitive and where it gets normalized. So I'm actually been hired by a a global law firm to work with uh, a group of six of their leaders next month on this very question of how do we normalize question asking and shift it away from it feeling so punitive. And I'll just give you one example of one of the ways that begins to shift. It has to be modeled Differently. So what you don't want to do is say to people, okay, guys, give me your best questions. I'm all ears. <laughs> you probably be met with deer in the headlights kind of expressions or hands on the hips or arms crossed. And yeah. there's a good reason for that. Many of us have been question shamed at some point in our right. educational experiences or early on in the job. And we learned very quickly, don't ask a question. Right. We'll say, and they'll say there, there's no bad, there's no bad questions. We're brainstorming. And then they're like, that's a dumb question. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. That wasn't nice. Um, so uh, yeah. So what not to do is to say, okay, guys, I'm totally giving your question. That's not how you model it. Actually you model it, which is hard. This is a, this is a learning curve for leaders. Mm-hmm. Transparent self-inquiry by modeling the ways that you yourself are starting to think differently about something. You know that that the guys over in Company X that we kind of shunned a couple of years ago, started to rethink that. I wonder, even though I sent that email and I vowed that you know we would never work with them again, they're actually doing some kind of interesting work now. And I kind of wonder if maybe we rethink that. And what if we kind of approach them to kind of do a, a co-opetition model, right? Mm-hmm. You by you modeling the ways by humbling yourself. First of all, the first step of humility is that you ask yourself that own question. And then you took it a step further by being transparent and sharing it with others. But this is an example of one of the ways that we can build a culture of inquiry mm-hmm. and have more leaders that lead with questions. I stink and love it. <laughs> um, I was, I had this thought about just why do we have these associations or kind of negative associations where we put creativity in its place? As you said earlier, you know, when I, so I got a PhD in creative writing and, you know, and I often was thinking at times, I was like, I'm not necessarily being oh so creative. I'm just, I'm trying to be open. I'm trying to be receptive, but there's a lot of analysis. There's a whole lot of things going on at the same time, but I did begin to like have this identity of, oh, I guess I'm creative. 
Uh, on the other hand, on the other end of the continuum, over the years, I've recognized that a lot of business leaders, the ones who like, no matter where you put them, they seem to like, even in a hard, hard context, they seem to just succeed. I think they are incredibly creative in the cultures yes. they make, the buildings they help construct, whatever it might be, but they don't have an identity even of being creative. They might yeah. think that they're being practical or whatever. So I just, I just think that that's interesting. It's a cultural thing. It's very cultural. We as a culture, well, first of all, when you compare, let's look at public policy funding. We don't, have we don't commit our dollars, our money, our energy, our resources, even to innovation. I was really hopeful when uh, President Obama became president. I thought, oh, maybe we'll have some sort of a, a I don't know, a Bureau of Innovation, which is is an oxymoron there there and of itself. But <laughs> some sort of investment into innovation. I think there was a kind of a sputtering start to it, but not really. But you look at in a lot of the Nordic countries, there are there are uh, public policy ventures and pu public monies towards design. If you look in France, there's a whole division their government devoted to fashion. And I know I'm talking about design and the arts and I don't only relegate creativity to the arts, but mm -hmm. my point is that it's very significant that we don't devote that that sort of, of public attention, money, resources to really making sure that we are creative. In part, because I don't think we understand creativity, which was a big part of why I wrote the Creativity Leap. I think we only relegate it to the arts and we don't realize that the best engineers and coders and accountants and lawyers and teachers and farmers are super creative when, in my view, they're doing this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. But it's very cultural. I think you're right that we have we 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 have not framed it in that way. You know, Einstein had a beautiful quote because he's a perfect example of a creative person where he's a brilliant scientist, physicist, and also loved, he was an incredible musician. He would actually spark, he understood that, and maybe he used this language, I don't know, but to spark the default network mode in our brain he would step away from the work and he would play the piano he was you know he would be found walking down the streets of princeton fiddling on his violin because those sorts of that that sort of activity sparks different neural synapses in the brain so that all the juicy bits and, and collisions and synchronicity bodies can actually happen and we're like letting that frontal neocortex we're offloading that for a bit and that's what a lot of my next book is going to be about. It's kind of taking wonder and rigor to that next level and thinking about what are the activities that we can be doing in the midst of all this technology to activate th this other sort of work. Einstein had a beautiful quote where he talked about how we that we have that intuition is the is the is this intuition is the sacred boss or something and the rational mind is the humble servant and we've, mis we've mistaken 
I'm messing it up, but we've mistaken the, the servant for, for, for the, for the boss. In other words, it's, uh-huh. it's the, in, the intuitive side of us, which is actually the master. And it's the <laughs> rational cognitive mind, which is the humble servant. And we flipped it in our society. So we have that a is, oh, that is so cool. Yeah. That is so true. That is making me think of recently reading uh, the last couple of books of Cormac McCarthy's, which they were, they were fine, but um, maybe not his best stuff, but he really has the, he, I, one thing I took away from it was that this unconscious that you're talking about, this primordial unconscious has been there since before we had language. Right. right. And so right. it's deep and powerful and uh, yeah. Yeah, and I and just found the quote. Yeah. I do, I forgive me for botching up that beautiful phrase from Einstein, but the quote is: "the the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is its faithful servant." He said, "Taken the the gift, and we bow down to the servant." Um, mm-hmm. We gotta find that. I guess we do, you know, and it's uh, I. I'm wanting it to be a shared experience, but with our Western mind, but it's certainly whether or not we recognize it, I I I totally agree. And man, where do we even go from there? But I'm just how can we be more faithful? Let's let's put it this way. How can we be more faithful stewards to eliciting? This different energy is what I'm thinking. I, Cause I I've so agree with you about like, if I'm hard on a problem and you know, my ego or like my little self, I guess my, I'm, I'm in stress. I'm in anxiety. I want to solve it. And I'm going to read a lot of books or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try to put it all together and it's not quite happening or it kind of does. And then you just go and you take a walk and you feel like you're being lazy because you're not on your task. And then all of these ideas just come at you from different angles. That's right. Yeah. So I have some thoughts and I'll, I'll send you this article, Chad. And if you want to share it with your listeners as well, it was published in fast company about a year ago now. And I called it um, your invisible work is the key to your most productive self. And it was uh, a prototype. I always, I, I use my writing and my speaking to prototype ideas constantly. And I get immediate feedback about if it hits, it, where, is it, where is it not making sense or, or, or confusing. But That's I was awesome. basically got this idea that it's the invisible work, the work that you can't track, the work that that's not about widgets produced, which is actually the most essential work. But what is that going to require? Mm-hmm. It's going to require a very different culture of management, what I call macro management, not micromanagement. Yeah. Our trust and uh, and the, the the framework that I've since developed since I wrote that article is that to your question, how do we intentionally uh, pay homage to the sacred gift of the intuition and all of the the nice serendipity that happens when we step away from the computer? It's through the motor framework. What I I've, I've made up this framework called motor, which is really MTR. Okay. Alternative activities are movement. That's the M. Thought. That's the T. And rest. That's the R. So when we are engaged in movement, a walk, play, um, dancing to a great song that just came on, right? 
when we allow ourselves to design the space and the time for deep thought, what Cal Newport, the productivity expert calls, right, deep thought, because we're not actually doing deep thought during the day. Not when you're turning mm-hmm. the email and then you go to this and you go to that, you know, the, you know, air quotes, multitasking. Deep thought requires, at least for me, and it's not the same for everyone, for me, requires a clear space in my desk. I literally need my physical space to be clear so that my mind can clear and time and quiet. And no interruptions. No interruptions, right? So that's the T. And then the R is rest. And I'm loving all that I'm learning about and reading about, about about the role of sleep. There's a reason why a third of our life about is should be spent in rest. Our brain is a really dynamic organ and it needs a lot of energy. It's hungry for nutrients and it needs the rest. So, so this is what I'm developing and working on right now, but I think it's very timely and relevant given chat GPT in the fourth industrial revolution, given the excessive amounts of burnout, given that companies are trying to figure out how to figure out this hybrid work situation. I think something that might sound kind of boring in the workplace, but is super necessary is this to achieve these higher level um, creativity goals. I love, I love the motor framework, uh, but I think it's psychological safety. Right. We need to have a be able to establish, I think, at least if managers aren't creative or if they're not willing to do or able to do a lot of self-inquiry, at least create a sense of belonging, a sense of like place where it's safe and people aren't in fear. Yeah. Um, psychological safety is hard to come by these days when there's so much ambiguity and unprecedented amounts of change. Right. Yeah. So how do we get it? I think we get it going back to the top of our conversation from some positive self-talk. At least that's what I share. That's what I do when I think about my smaller self. Mm. And we get it by by investing in relationship, um, investing in relationship with, with um, those in proximity to us and those with whom we work. And again, we can that gets easier if it's modeled for us. Oh, yes, it does. A lot of these things do come from the top down, but we have to help leaders be become aware and we're doing what we can. Absolutely. You are doing what you can. And, uh, and tell people about where they can find you and what you're up to. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on as your guest. This was an awesome conversation. People can go to figure8thinking.com. That's F-I-G-U-R-E, the number eight, thinking. And there they can download a sample chapter of the creativity leave i have lots of great resources that they can also download and they should also follow me on linkedin and on instagram Um, easy to find on linkedin natalie nixon and on instagram nat w nixon yes figure eight thinking it's really cool it's wonderful to have you on the big self show natalie thanks for sharing some of your time and ideas with us thanks for having me this was great We are all about big ideas and how to integrate them into a more sustainable life to open up your learning, level up your self-awareness and consciousness, and move from surviving to thriving to flourishing. And I think what Natalie Nixon is helping us to see is that it's about the questions we're asking more than the answers we're giving.
the same answers aren't going to work for the current problems we're facing. We need to raise our level of consciousness through asking questions.